And as you know, today I'm here to talk to you about Paul. As Neil said, I am trained as a New Testament scholar, but my real specialism is the writings of Paul. It's a lifelong passion. I've been teaching Paul now for 30 more than 30 years. And every time I read Paul's writings, I learn something new. I see something more interesting in him. But when I tell people that I'm a Paul scholar, um, normally a look of sympathy crosses their face. <laughs> as though somehow um, I've lost my marbles, and if only I had thought to study a more conducive bit of the Bible. And the reason for that, I think, is because Paul um, is at the very best a Marmite character. You either love him or you hate him. Um, there's very few people who are in the middle who say, well, you know, Paul is fine, really. Um, you don't normally encounter that. There's something about the writings of Paul, about Paul as a character, that evokes visceral reaction. Um, it's a kind of a deep emotive reaction. And I think that's a really interesting thing to observe, that there is something about his writing that really engages us emotionally. So one of the things I want to do today is to reflect with you on who, what we know about him as a person. Because as a person, he evokes great emotion, as I've just said. And one of the things that I think is absolutely fascinating is to observe in the New Testament that he evoked great emotion then too. If you doubt me, just read the Corinthian epistles. The Corinthian epistles reflect a community who were clearly driven to distraction by Paul. And um, Paul was driven to distraction by them, and he wrote out of that context. So he has always evoked great emotion. So that tells us that there may be things in his writings, in who he was as a person, that we can discover. We can work out something about who he is. I believe very strongly about everyone, that even the people who drive you mad the most, if you can understand why they are as they are, it makes it a lot easier to understand them. So I have applied my general principle of people to my understanding of Paul. So what I want to do today is to try and tell you a little bit about who he was, why he was as he was, and then to reflect on why that means that he does evoke this kind of reaction. But before I start doing that, I need to acknowledge that this is actually really quite difficult to do. And it's quite difficult to do because we only have a few pieces of information about him. Frankly, we have more information about him than we have about any other New Testament character. And by that, I include Jesus. And the reason for this is that we have an account about him, which is the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke, probably. We have his own words, his epistles. And that's why we have more about Paul than we do about Jesus, is that what we have about Jesus are people's accounts about him, which do include his own words, but we actually, wouldn't it have been useful to have had a letter from Jesus, actually to hear his actual words? We don't have them, but we do have Paul's. So we have an account about him, Acts. We have many of his letters in which we hear his actual voice. 
And one of the intriguing things for those of us who are Pauline scholars is trying to match up Acts and his epistles. Um, you can do it partially, you can't do it entirely. And that's one of the interesting things to note. But then, on top of an account about him and his own words, we have later tradition. There are all sorts of different texts written um, quite early on in the early church. My personal favourite is the story of Paul and Thecla, which tells us a little bit about Paul and gives us the earliest description of what Paul might have looked like. And if you know um, the Acts of Paul and Thecla at all, you will know it's not the most flattering description. Um, certainly if someone described me like that, I would be slightly gutted. The Acts of Paul and Thecla describe Paul as someone who was small, he was bow-legged, he had receding hairline and eyebrows that met in the middle. It gives you a certain um, je ne sais quoi when you think about him. But what it also goes on to say is that he had the face of an angel. And I think there's something in that that describes who Paul really was to us. So he was not particularly prepossessing to look at. But there was something about him that communicated the essence of God, and that's what they recognised and remembered. So we've got Acts, we've got Paul's own writings, we've got things like Paul, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, we've got all sorts of artwork about Paul, which comes through the ages, um, and you don't even have to look very hard at all to see all sorts of different pictures of Paul. And then on top of all of those things, we also have Pauline theology. So over the years, people have expressed their opinions on Paul. And in terms of biblical scholarship, more has been written on Paul than nearly any other subject in the Bible. There are tomes upon tomes upon tomes of books about Paul. So therefore, we have all sorts of layers that we have to excavate through in order to understand him. And that's why the task is so hard. We have fragmentary voices, and then we have layers upon layers upon layers of Christian tradition. And it is highly likely that you have an image of Paul, but that image of Paul is mediated through somebody, whether that be somebody who has written about Paul, somebody who has painted Paul, but it is unlikely that your picture of Paul is solely taken from the biblical text. There are so many layers, it's very hard to see Paul for ourselves. The other thing just to note about Paul is that although we have that range of information about him, we also know very, very little about him. And the best illustration of this is Acts 23 tells us that Paul had a sister and a nephew. And unless you read Acts very carefully, you miss it. And one of the things that always makes me go, wait, wait, he's got a sister? What was she called? Um, where did she live? Um, apparently she lived in Jerusalem with her nephew. Um, what did she look like? Um, did he have any other brothers and sisters? Who were his mother and father? What was his nephew called? There's all sorts of questions that that tiny piece of information evokes out of us. So it's just to illustrate that we can know some things about him, but there's also a lot of things we simply cannot know. And we'll just have to say we know Paul had a family, um, he had a sister and a nephew, he may have had more relations, um, but beyond that, um, it's hard to know anything more about him. But what do we know about him? What can we know about Paul? 
The first thing that I'm sure many of you will know, um, the clue is in the title to this lecture, apart from anything else, that we call him Paul of Tarsus. So Tarsus is a place um, in a region of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is what we um, is modern Greek. Sorry, it's not. It's modern modern Turkey. So Asia Minor um, has an area in it called Cilicia. Um, and it's um, in southern um, Turkey, just as you're coming round the corner from Syria, modern Syria, you get into Cilicia, so the, the bottom um, most eastern bit of Asia Minor. Um, and one of the interesting things is that Paul says in Acts 22, reported by Luke, that he was a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And that tiny piece of information gives us some very interesting insights into Paul. Firstly, he's Jewish, who is born not in Jerusalem or in Judea or in Galilee, which means that he was a diaspora Jew. And that is the first pillar for understanding something about Paul. The important thing about diaspora Jews is that they were people who were born out of their homeland. They were spread across all sorts of parts of the world, but particularly in this period, there was a lot of Jews in the eastern regions, but also in Rome and other areas. And what we know of diaspora Jews from the first century is that self-identity was a really important theme for them. And as soon as you stop and think about it, you begin to recognise that that's an important characteristic. Um, if you live in the country that you think and feel is your home, your questions about identity are very different than if you live in a country that you don't call your home for whatever reason. And I'm sure there are people here today who could talk very eloquently about that experience. Because what you have to do constantly, if you live out of a place that would naturally be called your home, is you have to go, this is who I am in this context. One of the interesting things about living in a place that you do naturally call home is you don't have to do that in the same kind of way um, because most of the other people around you will react in a similar kind of way. Although, I mean, it's, it's not entirely the case, is it? Um, I grew up in Manchester um, and now um, live in the South. And um, parts of my experience of having moved to the south from the north is whenever I meet another Mancunian, we bond around um, things that you say about um, Manchester, things that kind of language that you use, your experience of who you are. Um, but at the same time, you also find people that you can relate to really well, and it makes a whole load of sense. But I think there's something to reflect on about somebody who has grown up in a context always feeling like he didn't belong and needing to define who he was in that context. Um, and what we know about diaspora Judaism is that that was true across the board of all Jews. They needed to be clearer what it meant to them to be Jewish. So there's a, a, a strand of that which becomes very important. And if you know Paul, you will know that that whole strand of how you define yourself as being Jewish is one that bubbles away all the way through his writing. So he's a diaspora Jew. The second thing we get from Paul being born in Tarsus in Cilicia is that Tarsus was a place which also had a very high sense of pride. People from Tarsus were very pleased with coming from Tarsus. And one of the things you may not know is that after Athens, in the period that Paul was born, 
Tarsus was the second centre of Greek philosophical teaching. So after Athens, Tarsus was next. So therefore, if you came from Tarsus, you would have a strong affinity to Greek philosophy. And that might explain to you something about how Paul writes his letters. I don't know if you have found an experience of reading Paul's letters where you go, I've no idea what he's talking about. Maybe, I'm saying just me. Um, but one of the features about how Paul constructs his letters is he constructs them according to a Greek philosophical framework. And that gets us into thinking about something which is also very important for us for understanding Paul, which is that Greek philosophy was driven very heavily by rhetoric, and it is very clear from Paul's letters that he was also trained very thoroughly in the Greek rhetoric. Never can say that word. Um, he was trained in Greek rhetoric. I'll leave it there, um, but also in Greek philosophy. And therefore, what he's trying to do in writing his letters is he's trying to persuade you of something. And one of the reasons why often people struggle with Paul is they feel that he's a bit in your face. Um, he is a bit in your face because he is trying to persuade you of something. And he's doing it using a technique which to us now is alien. It would have worked much more successfully with the people that he was writing to. So two of those two things hang together for understanding Paul. That he is trying to persuade you of something... And he's doing it using a rule book that we no longer follow. So one of the really important things about recognising in his writings, if you say, I cannot understand why he suddenly jumped from that point to that point, the answer normally is because he's moving forward in a Greek philosophical framework. And if you understand the philosophy, it makes a whole load more sense of why he's done it in that kind of way. So, born in Tarsus... Um, was a diaspora Jew, clearly trained in Greek philosophy, and also clearly trained in the Greek language. One of the important things to recognise about Paul is he's evidently a fluent Greek speaker and writer. And therefore, he is using the language that he knows in order to be able to communicate with people. And this is what gets you into why Paul was a very particular person writing in this period. Because the majority of the earliest disciples um, were people who, uh, well, the entirety of the early disciples, the first 12 and probably the first 70 as well, um, were born and grew up in the Holy Land, whether in Judea or in Galilee. So therefore, they were first language Hebrew speakers. Paul, being born and growing up outside of the Holy Land, was a first language Greek speaker. He was clearly very fluent in Hebrew, but nevertheless he was a first language Greek speaker. We need to debunk something, though, before I go on, which is that people like to say that because the earliest disciples were fishermen and artisan and all of those kinds of things, they couldn't have spoken fluent Greek. Utter rubbish. They lived in the Roman Empire, and people like Peter and James and John, we know, ran fishing businesses, because we tell them from, um, we can gather that from the gospel accounts. And because of that, they would have had to have traded their fish in the Roman Empire. 
and Romans didn't speak Hebrew. So therefore, they either had to have been able to speak Greek or Latin. So they're kind of that argument that says Peter couldn't have spoken fluent Greek because he was just a humble fisherman. Do not believe it for a moment. Of course he could speak fluent Greek, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to sell his fish. But Paul, as a fluent first language Greek speaker, was a much more um, fluent speaker than you would have had from one of the people who um, dealt in fish or one of the other um, um, occupations of the disciples. And the reason why this was really important is that if Christianity was going to grow as it did from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, to use Paul's language, but especially getting to Rome, there would have been no good if people were primarily another language speaker. So one of the really important things to understand about Paul is that the reason why Christianity grew as it did was because Paul was able to use the language, the culture, the rhetoric, and the philosophy of the day to be able to communicate what difference he thought Jesus made in the world. So there's something really important about recognising Paul as a diaspora Jew who grew up in Tarsus. The next thing to say about Paul is that according to Acts, he was a Roman citizen. Um, And as soon as I say that out loud, there are um, so many arguments in New Testament scholarship standing behind me that I can hear them echoing in my ear. According to Acts, Paul says that he is a Roman citizen. Acts 16 and Acts 22, he says it twice. The interesting thing is that Paul does not say it in one of his own epistles. And when he does his grand um, description of who he is in Philippians, for example, doesn't mention his Roman citizenship. So there are some Pauline scholars who will say Paul wasn't a Roman citizen. Luke's made it up. The problem is, how can you possibly know? How could you know whether he was a Roman citizen or not? And if he wasn't a Roman citizen, why would Luke have made it up at those particular points in the accounts? So as far as I'm concerned, Luke says that he was, um, and therefore that will do for us. One of the conundrums, however, is why was he a Roman citizen? Because you didn't just get Roman citizenship by wandering through Rome at some point in your life. Um, It was always given for a particular reason. And if you were not born in Rome and the surrounding area, then you would gain your Roman citizenship for something that you or your family had done for the Roman Empire. So that might be that you had fought in one of their armies, or you had been a significant trader, or something in those kind of regions. According to most of the texts that we have, hardly anyone was made a Roman citizen as far east as Asia Minor. Um, there's a little bit of evidence of some people being made Roman citizens in Ephesus, which is even um, which is um, not quite as far east, but nevertheless, it's kind of towards um, the, the eastern region. So the question is, where did the Roman citizenship come from? Was his father in the Roman army? Did his father offer some particular um, service to the Romans? We simply don't know. But the reason why Luke says that he was a Roman citizen and why this becomes very important is that Paul, therefore, has the right to stand before the emperor. You'll remember the story about Paul going to Rome to proclaim the good news of Jesus before the emperor. As a Roman citizen, he could request that. If he were not a Roman citizen, he could not request it. So that seems to be a crucial part of the story. We therefore have to decide how we relate to it. But I leave it with you to think about 
but it adds on to the back of the point I was just making about Paul and his Greek language. If, as a Greek speaker, he could then speak throughout the Roman world, actually, as a Roman citizen, he could travel more freely around the Roman world. But I do just need to add in just a little um, note. Uh, one of the fascinating things that happens on both the occasions when Paul claims in Acts that he's a Roman citizen is the Romans in question didn't know. And crucially in Acts 16, um, absolutely fascinatingly, Paul is arrested. It's the story, if you know it, of Paul being imprisoned in Philippi. He's um, arrested, flogged, imprisoned in Philippi, and only after the earthquake has happened and he comes out and they say they're going to banish him from the city, at that point he says, ah, but I'm a Roman citizen. At which point you go, well, why wait till then? Wouldn't it have been a clever idea to have mentioned it before the flogging? Um, and that kind of raises you some all sorts of interesting questions about what was going on there in the story, which we can pick up in questions later if you're interested. So we've started with doing Paul's um, birthplace, um, Paul's relationship in the Greek world, Paul's um, kind of location within the Roman world. We now need to remind ourselves, of course, of his connection with Judaism, because that's one of the other key features of Paul. So as I've mentioned already, he is a diaspora Jew and has grown up outside of the Holy Land. But more than one occasion in his own epistles, as well as in Acts, he mentions being a Pharisee. So that then takes us into another world that we need to have a think about and reflect on. So the first thing to note is that in Acts 22, when Paul introduces himself and says that he's from Tarsus in Cilicia, he says that he was brought up in this city, and at the moment he's in Jerusalem in Acts 22, so he was born in Tarsus, brought up in Jerusalem, and learned at the feet of Gamaliel. All those are really interesting pieces of information that we need to put together. The question that exercises New Testament scholars endlessly is what the word brought up means. And you may think you need to get out more as New Testament scholars. We do, it is true. But um, it is nevertheless an interesting question. If I say I was brought up in Manchester, how many years do I have to have been in Manchester to claim the brought upness? In case you're interested, the answer is 19. I think I, I definitely can declare I was brought up in Manchester from the year of naught to 19. I lived there. But if I um, moved at the age of four, could I claim to have been brought up in Manchester? You know, that, that's what we're talking about. How early in his life does Paul have to have moved to Jerusalem for him to be claimed to be brought up in Jerusalem? Um, we can't know the answer to it. But what the answer that I would suggest to you is that it is likely that he moved to Jerusalem when he was around 12, at the age that he would then start learning from um, the person that he would learn from, who we now know to be called Gamaliel. That seems to be most likely that in the context of the, re the reference that he makes, that he was born in Tarsus, he grew up there for a good portion of his childhood, but then when his education kicked in, at that point he moved to Jerusalem. And what we know about the rabbinic education system was that they would do elementary education at home um, unless 
um, they wanted, until they got to a certain age, at this age, we're thinking around the age of 12, it became clear that they were talented in education. At that point, they might apply to a rabbi and say, would you teach this talented young boy, and I use my gendered um, words there appropriately, would you teach this um, talented young boy and take him on further? So it seems quite probable that the solution was that Paul grew up and was born in Tarsus, grew up there until he was 12, then moved to Jerusalem to, move, to learn from Gamaliel. And Gamaliel um, is a very, very fascinating character um, who we find out a tiny bit from, from the New Testament, but also from outside in first century Judaism. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. Um, and it is said that he was the grandson of the Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Hillel was a very, very important character within Judaism, who was the opponent of Rabbi Shammai. And the two of them had large and extensive debates about how harshly you should interpret the law. Um, Gamaliel seems to be in the school of Hillel and seems to be following in that tradition quite clearly. So what I want to do now is just reflect with you a little bit about the Pharisees. Because if there is any group from the first century who have the worst press imaginable from the New Testament, it has to be the Pharisees. So much so that actually today you might even be tempted to call someone a Pharisee and it won't be a compliment. But what I'd like to suggest to you is that actually, as Christians, we have misunderstood the Pharisees as a movement really significantly. And understanding them helps you understand Paul. It also usefully helps you understand Jesus quite a lot. So the Pharisees were, interestingly, um, known what we would call today a lay group. And by a lay group, I mean they were not priests. Um, or at least the vast majority of them were not priests. If I just kind of describe Judaism in the first century to you quickly, just to give you a sense of how this functioned in the first century. So first century Judaism was marked by the priests who worshipped in the temple, who were helped by the Levites, and they were the ones who oversaw the sacrifices and the worship that took place in the temple. Nearly everybody else was what you would call an ordinary Jew, who would follow um, their Judaism to the best of their capacity. But for the vast majority of people, what that would mean would be that you would go to the temple three times a year for the big festivals, if you could. Most of the time, most of the people went, but you didn't always have to go. So you would go for the Feast of Passover, um, which was so, and the ancient three festivals were all harvest festivals. So you would have um, the barley harvest festival, which is Passover. Then you would have the wheat harvest festival, which was Pentecost. And then you would have the harvest harvest festival, the kind of the gathering in of everything at the end, um, which um, is the feast of the tabernacles, which comes around September. So you've got one around April, one around late May to early June, depending on when Passover fell, and then one in September. And if you were an ordinary Jew, um, following your Judaism, that would be the, the vast majority of the extent of your devotion. It didn't mean you weren't a deeply devout Jew, but that's how the shaping of your life would work. And then um, the Pharisaic movement began to grow up. 
And the Pharisaic movement was made up of people saying, well, if we love God, and if this actually means something to us really important, then following God must actually mean something more significant than simply just tootling to the temple three times a year and giving a sacrifice. What difference does it make to me as a Jew to follow God on a Monday morning? What does that look like? And the Pharisaic movement was a movement that was actually a daily piety movement. If I want to make sure that I'm following God in my everyday life, then actually how I do it will be in what happens in my home. And it was a vastly significant movement in Judaism, taking it away from just three formal sacrifices in a place far, far away into, actually, this is going to affect how I read scripture. It's going to affect how I eat meals. It's going to affect how I relate to other people. It's going to affect how I do my purchases. It's an everyday devotional movement within Judaism. And as you will gather from the way in which I'm talking about it, I'm a bit of a fan of the Pharisees because I think that what they did was they changed the nature of Judaism from being something that was a distant, unrelatable devotion into something that made a real difference to everyday people's lives. And the reason why they came into conflict with people like Jesus all the time is Jesus was doing the same thing. The only difference was that Jesus' answers were different to the Pharisees' answers. So the Pharisees' answers were, let's read the law really carefully and work out from our reading of the law actually how that affects our lives. Jesus' answers were much more about love of your neighbour and how you can work related. And they just collided time and time again because they both cared about the same thing, which was about proper devotion to God. And the trouble is, because they collided so often, we as Christians have come out with a really bad impression of the Pharisees. I would argue that if Jesus had never existed, um, there would be a very, very strong attraction to the Pharisaic movement, even, and there still is today within Judaism. Because what they're doing is doing that deep reflection on what difference does worshipping God, what difference does love of God actually make to my life. It's a great question, and they were asking the great question, even though actually their answer um, sometimes became quite constrictive. And the other reason that we know that they were a very attractive movement is that we know of two people who had a look around to try and work out what form of Jew they wanted to be because they were so passionate about their devotion. One of them was called Paul, The other one was called Josephus, who lived a lot later than Paul. But Josephus, who was writing um, in the 90s AD, also talked about how he had a growth into um, trying to make his his faith make a difference to his life. And he tried all sorts of different forms of Judaism and in the end became a Pharisee because it was the most attractive form for him. So just to give you a sense that actually Pharisaism was a really attractive movement in the first century because it was about daily, everyday life that made a difference to people's lives. And clearly, Paul, learning from Gamaliel, who himself was a Pharisee, became deeply passionate about this way of living his life and threw himself into it, hook, line and sinker. And that begins to give you a sense of who Paul was as a person. 
I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know when I tell you that Paul was driven by passion. Paul was somebody who was deeply and profoundly passionate about what he believed. He was passionate about being Pharisaical to start with, and then he was passionate about being Christian. And it's important to recognise that that passion is what informs Paul and who he was. And then something really, really important happened in Paul's life. And for me, this is the thing that helps you understand who he was as a person and how he ticked. And of course, I mean what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And again, within Pauline scholarship, there's a vast amount of conversation about precisely what it meant, um, what, the con- what Paul's conversion meant. Was it more like a prophetic call narrative? Um, did he have a, a big conversion moment? And let me just explain why this becomes quite an important question. When we talk about conversion today, we talk about converting into a religion. So if we talked about a Christian convert today, we would be talking about somebody who became a Christian. The reason why this is complicated at the time of Paul is technically Christianity didn't really exist at the time of Paul. What you had were a ragbag, loose gathering of people who followed Jesus who were Jewish. So in a sense, what happened with Paul was that he became a Christian Jew rather than a Pharisaic Jew. But he didn't stop being Jewish and he didn't suddenly move religions. So one of the complicated things about that word conversion is it implies to us something that actually probably wasn't true of Paul in that period. But something really did happen for Paul on the road to Damascus. And you will know the story, but let me just kind of rehearse it again for you. Because I think when you pay very close attention to it, you understand what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. So he is going um, from Antioch to Damascus um, to seek out Christians to persecute. And on the way on the road to Damascus, he sees a bright light and he hears a voice speaking from heaven. Now, if you are Jewish and you know your scriptures really well and you see a bright light and you hear a voice speaking... There's only one thing it can mean. If you know your Old Testaments, you will know that light and voices um, indicate what we call technically in biblical studies a theophany, a revelation of God. Think Moses on Mount Sinai. Think Elijah um, when he has his experience by the cave. Think Isaiah in the temple. Whenever you see a bright light and hear a voice speaking, there is no doubt at all that this is God. God has turned up and something spectacular is about to happen. But then the voice says something that Paul wasn't expecting. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And you can just imagine um, that kind of crunching of the gears going on in Paul's head because Paul knows that he's off to defend God. That's the entire reason he's going to Damascus. He's going to defend God from these um, Jews um, who follow this person called Christ who seem to be making a mess of the devotion to God. He's going to defend God. And instead, this voice says, why do you persecute me? And the hint that Paul knows that it's God is his answer is, who are you, Lord? 
Now, if you're Jewish at this period, if you say the word Lord, you mean God. You do not call anybody else Lord. It was one of the biggest problems that the Jews had in the Roman Empire, was that they weren't prepared to call Caesar um, anything other than Caesar. They didn't want to call Caesar Lord. So therefore, when Paul says, who are you, Lord? He is effectively saying, I know you're God, but you can't be God because you're saying I'm persecuting you and really I'm defending you. So how on earth is all of this um, happening? And I think that is the moment for Paul where suddenly all of the pieces of what he knew to be true get thrown up into the air and they come down in a different order. And the different order is that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, and therefore, if everything that people are saying about Jesus is true, then Paul has to change his life completely and utterly. And what Paul did, if you know um, from Acts, um, he went off for three years into the desert. And my view is that what he was doing was rearranging the pieces in his head that go, I knew this to be true, now I know this to be true, and now I've got to make sense of it. I'm going to end in a moment, but I just want to, therefore, tell you why that, for me, makes a whole load of sense of what Paul is doing in his writings. Because bear in mind that when Paul is writing to the people that he writes to, the earliest Christian communities, they have almost nothing to be able to help them shape their beliefs. You know, if you were somebody who lived in Philippi in the first century and somebody came along and said, um, this is what we believe about Jesus, how would you know whether they were telling the truth or not? Um, how would you be able to evaluate whether this thing that they're telling you is in fact true? The answer is, you, all you had were what somebody may or may not have told you about stories about Jesus um, from his life in um, Palestine, the people around you in your Christian community, and people like Paul who were slowly putting the pieces together. And the reason why, for me, Paul is the most fascinating and exciting writer is that he is the first person in the New Testament, he's not the only person, but he was the first person to begin to say, this is who I think Jesus is and was, and this is why it makes a difference. And he's the first one to do it, and really, in my view... You, I've declared my bias already, but the best one to do it. Because what he does is he says, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. And those two pieces of information mean that I now have to live my life completely differently. And just a little hint for understanding Paul's letters is the first part of Paul's letters are nearly all about what you believe. This is how we believe um, what we believe. And then the second bit of Paul's letters are, and now you live your life differently. And that, for me, is the really crucial thing about Paul. This is what we believe, and now this is how we live. Because if, if this is what we believe, we have to live our lives differently. And that gives you the sense of what's going on um, in Paul's writings and in his communities. 
you will probably gather that I could carry on talking to you about Paul for another three hours, but I promised you I won't. So now I will stop because it will give us time to explore various questions. And I bet you've got all sorts of questions about stuff I haven't mentioned, and you're very welcome um, to raise it. You're also welcome to disagree with me on anything that you want to, um, but now we can move to questions and Neil will chair.